last Sunday we began a new series, a series on parables. So we saw one third of Jesus' teachings as recorded in the Gospels are done in parables. But our text last Sunday said he did not say anything to them without using a parable. So everything that he taught publicly to the crowds was spoken in parables. So it stands to reason that this is something we should study and something we should study carefully as we go through the Gospels. But what do we mean by parables? Are there different kinds of parables? Yes, there are. The word parable is used 48 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not used in John at all. And then it's used twice in the book of Hebrews. So 50 times in the New Testament we find it. And it is used in different ways. Usually when we think of a parable, we think of a story. The prodigal son, for example. uh, Or the good Samaritan. But there are other parables which involve simple comparisons. Or uh, saying... This situation is similar to something in the kingdom of God. All parables, however, are intended to stimulate thought. Jesus wants us to think. So, for example, one of the parables is actually a proverb. Physician, heal thyself. One is a riddle. How can Satan cast out Satan? What about comparison? We see this time and time again. The kingdom of heaven is like, and then Jesus will tell us a parable. But then we also have contrast in Luke chapter 18, the story of the unjust judge. And sometimes it's a simple story, and other times it's more complex. As we saw last Sunday, a parable is intended to change our behavior and to create disciples of the Lord Jesus. Today we will look at a parable that I mentioned last week in the sermon, and that is this parable of the friend who comes at midnight. It's found in Luke chapter 11. Verses 1 through 13. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children are in bed with me, or with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is a parable that addresses concerns about prayer. After all, that's the context in which it is given. I think we all want to know what inspires prayer, what empowers prayer. How we begin to answer that question, in fact, 
reveals a lot about us and how we think of our relationship to God at its most basic level. Because either, I think we have one of two choices. Either we will focus on our activity, what I'm doing when I pray, or we will in fact focus on God and his character as we pray. One of the things I mentioned last week, I had a list of nine things about the parables. The last one I mentioned is one of the characteristics of the parables told by Jesus is that they are theocentric. That is, they are God-centered. I said a few moments ago that the purpose of parables was to change our behavior and to create disciples. That is true. But they do this by telling us who God is. And they tell us about God's kingdom. And they tell us about the new reality that God is creating here on earth. I think we miss this oftentimes when we read the parables because we think it's about us, the listener. Or even Jesus' first audience when they heard these parables that it's about them. And we really miss what is going on. Let's look at this verse by verse. It starts out with a question, a request. Lord, teach us to pray. As our text begins, Jesus has just finished praying. And we're given insight into how he prayed. He prayed privately, and yet his disciples were with him. I I would just point out as we start, our view of privacy is very different. If I'm praying privately, nobody else is around. But in Luke chapter 9, verse 18, once when Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, He asked them, who do the crowds say I am? So I think oftentimes we think that private prayer is something that's just me by myself and no one else around. And yet here is Jesus praying privately and there are people around. Something for us to think about. The question is, Lord, teach us to pray. This is a request. And on the face of it, I would say this is a very odd request. The disciples are Jews. They know how to pray. They've been going to synagogue their whole life. They pray before meals. They pray every Sabbath. They pray in the synagogue. They know how to pray. But it seems that what Jesus does when he prays was so different from what the disciples were used to doing that they found themselves asking him, teach us how to pray. How were their prayers different from those of Jesus? Well, first of all, Jewish prayers during that time, and to a certain degree even today, were marked by formality. We would call them liturgical. These are things that they recited from memory or things that they read. Oftentimes, things found in Scripture, the book of Psalms. Uh, It is not uncommon, even today, among Orthodox Jews, that they will pray a psalm. And the entire book of Psalms is seen as a prayer book. So they were used to more formal, more ritualized form of prayer. But the second thing about their prayers is they prayed in Hebrew. Now, this is the language of the Old Testament. This is not the language of the street or the market. Very few people in Jesus' day spoke Hebrew in public. It was a language for church, if you wish, for temple, for synagogue. When they went to synagogue, they would hear the Old Testament read in Hebrew. That they were familiar with. And when they would recite prayers, they would recite them in Hebrew. But they didn't speak Hebrew. I mean, they understood it, but they spoke Aramaic. 
This is the first difference we find between Jesus and them. Jesus did not pray in Hebrew, as best we can tell. He prayed in Aramaic. He prayed in the language of the street. He prayed in the language that he used when he spoke to people every day. And we see this in the prayer that he gives us because he refers to God the Father as Abba. And this, in fact, becomes a pattern for the early church. That it is less formal, but more than that, it is Aramaic. It is the language he spoke every day. Uh, last week, uh, a number of conversations with different people, but um, one of the things, uh, Dave was there, we were talking with Laura about uh, the voice used in preaching. That oftentimes when people, when men preach, uh, when they're not in the pulpit, they use a voice, and then when they get in the pulpit, suddenly they become very dramatic. And, uh, and I think that's how we would see the disciples and the Jews of that day praying, that they would talk and everyone hanging out and just, you know, shooting the breeze. And then when they get to synagogue and they would start praying, it would be very formal, and it would be in a language that they did not normally use. But Jesus prays to God, his Father, in the same language that he would use to talk to anyone around him. The second thing about his prayers is that they were casual, if you wish, conversational. I, I hesitate to say casual because I think as Americans we might run riot with that. But he prays in the form of a conversation. And we see this in the prayer that he gives them. If you look at verses 2 through 4, he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And you may notice that this is an abbreviated form of what we find in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. We know it as the Lord's Prayer. There is much that could be said about this prayer. And in fact, I think I've preached at least a series or two on the Lord's Prayer. Um, but what I want to focus on are the parables that Jesus told them. After giving them a pattern for prayer, Jesus then tells them two parables, which I think have much to teach us. The first parable is found in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. Let me read it to you. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a, one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then one in, the one inside says, Don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. I want to be careful as I do this, but I think that the way that many English translations have written the parables are incorrect. And the NIV here is, is actually quite wrong because it... It uh, gives it as a statement. Suppose one of you has a friend. When in fact it is written in the form of a question. Which of you, if a friend comes to you at midnight, or who from you, if a friend comes to you at midnight? This expression, which of you or who from you, is found 11 times in the Gospels. And in every one of them, they ask a question, and the question, the implied answer is, not one of you. Which one of you would do this? And the answer is, not one of you would. I think that's important for our purposes. Think of Luke chapter 14. Who from you, wishing to build a tower, will not sit down first and calculate the cost? 
that is the picture, the scene, the scenario that Jesus sets, would be known to people. Like, if you're going to build a building, you better sit down and count how much it's going to cost. Well, the picture that Jesus paints here is one that would be familiar to his listeners living in the villages around Galilee. Um, Josephus writes in his uh, account, he was a Jewish historian, that there were 200 villages in Galilee. I, I don't know if that's true, but he lists 40 of them, 40 small villages found throughout the region. And the scene is this. You're in a small village, and you're in bed with your children. And in fact, most of the people in that day had a one-room house, not a one-bedroom, a one-room house. And the back part of the house, the back part of the room, was a platform, and that's where you would sleep. Everyone would sleep on the same bed. And the front would be where all the activities, like eating and things like that, would take place. You get into bed, and suddenly someone comes to your door and says, I have a visitor who's just showed up. Now, to have a visitor show up late at night in the early, in the first century, would be very unusual. Most people did not travel at night. They didn't have headlights like we do, or flashlights. They would have lanterns, but for the most part, they traveled during the daytime. When you had a visitor come to your house, it was your duty, your obligation, to serve that guest food. And the food must be served with bread. No, not the way that we do in this country for sandwiches, but in the first century, they did not use utensils. They didn't have spoons and forks. They would, in fact, provide you food, but then you would take the bread and tear off a piece and then use that to get something out of the main dish. That was your spoon or your fork. So, let's say you had a lavish meal, but you had no bread. Then you would say to someone, well, I have nothing to serve my guest, because how is my guest going to eat if I don't have any fresh bread? Bread was central to every meal in the first century. Not stale bread, because you have a guest. It needs to be fresh. What is at stake as this host is serving food is not simply, you know, this is my duty, this is my obligation, but his honor is at stake. I mean, what would, what would it be like if somebody came to his house and he, in fact, did not offer him or have food for him? But not only his reputation is at stake, but the entire village. Again, we are Americans, we're very individualistic, it's all about me. But in the early first century, people thought of the village. So that if somebody did something terrible, it not only reflected on him or her and their family, but the entire village. So this surprised host knows that he can go to a neighbor and get bread because it isn't simply his reputation that is at stake, but that of the whole village. So he goes next door, he goes to a neighbor to get bread. The question is, how did he know where to go? If he doesn't have fresh bread, how does he know that his neighbor does? By the way, let me just put this in here. When we read loaves of bread, we tend to think slices, right? Sliced bread. That's not what they had. 
they would have larger loaves in which you would tear off a piece and use it to eat with. But how does he know that his neighbor has fresh bread? I don't. How do I know that you do? Well, in small villages in Galilee, people shared ovens. They had communal ovens. And those who had their own ovens, the oven was outside. So either way, if you're using your own personal oven or you're using the village's oven, everybody knows you have bread because we saw you baking bread today. That's how the host knows to go to the neighbor to ask for bread. I know you have bread because I saw your wife baking bread today at the oven. The host, who has been surprised by this visitor at midnight, knows that his neighbor will respond. But Jesus asked his disciples if they could imagine a situation in which the neighbor would not respond positively. Is it possible? Is it possible that a friend or a neighbor would say, Don't bother me. Don't bother me. The door is already locked. Unlikely that people would lock their doors in early first century Galilee. My children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. It is unlikely that this would happen. In fact, the implied answer is no one would ever do this. No one would ever say, don't bother me. I can't help you. I can't give you any bread. So what would happen? Well, verse number eight is the key, I think, to this entire passage. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. As I said, this is the key to the passage, and yet I don't think it's as clear as we might want. Which is okay, because as we've seen, parables are not always easy to understand. Jesus wants us to have to figure them out, to think through what it is exactly he is saying. We saw last week in Mark chapter 4, when he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them the secret of the kingdom has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. Notice, everything is said in parables. So that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. From what I can tell, many people think that the focus in this parable is on the surprised host who has a guest who needs bread and therefore he goes to the neighbor and wants three loaves of bread. And so the NIV, the translation we use, says because of the man's boldness, that is the surprised host, he, the neighbor, will get up and give him as much as he needs. Other translations in English point toward persistence. Yet if he keeps on asking, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Another version says, yet because of the first man's sheer persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. I'm convinced that this is not what Jesus is saying at all. Even in the question that the disciples ask, the request that they have of him, teach us how to pray, it reveals that their focus is different than what Jesus intends. 
they want to know how to pray. I want to pray nicely. I want to be able to pray well. And Jesus gives them a pattern. But then they may miss the point of what he's saying, and so then he gives them two parables so that they might understand better. What is the important question we should ask ourselves? If Jesus were here today and we were going to ask him a question, should we ask him, Lord, teach us how to pray? Or should we say, Lord, to whom are we praying? This, I think, is what Jesus is talking about. The disciples want to know how, and Jesus is focusing on who, who it is to whom they are praying. This, I think, may be the most significant difference between Jesus at prayer and the disciples at prayer. Jesus is praying to his Father. By the way, we are so used to that, we're so familiar with that. But Jews did not call God their Father. And so in many ways, one could argue they didn't know exactly who they were talking to. But Jesus did. He was talking to his Father. And so in this first parable... God is the neighbor who is sleeping with his kids in bed. And then the neighbor, the surprise host, shows up and says, I need some bread. The one praying is the one who is the surprise host. And so Jesus, having told them what to say when they pray, then wants them to think about it. Who is it to whom you are praying? How do you think of God? Is he someone who cannot be bothered? Is he, is, is he someone whose door is locked? Who is already in bed with the kids and will not get up to answer your prayer? Is he someone who will come up with excuses for why he cannot help you? Or is he, like the neighbor in this parable, a man of honor? A man who is not simply a friend and is not simply a neighbor, but a man of honor and is concerned for his neighbor's reputation and for the reputation of his village and therefore he will get up and give him whatever he needs. One commentator has written it this way, I tell you the sleeping neighbor will not get up and give his friend the bread because they are friends. The neighbor will get up and give fresh bread because he is a man of honor. A man who will not bring shame to himself or his village. Fresh bread for the surprised guest will come through the door. Not because of the nature of the request. He's asked and so he has given not because of the relationship with the neighbor. The confident request is anchored in the honor of the neighbor in bed. Now, if you read the NIV, that's not what you will get. If you look at verse number 8, it says, yet because of the man's boldness. And there's a footnote that says persistence. Um, And this is simply not what is being said. And I won't get into the Greek of it, but it's saying, this is a man who has honor. He is concerned for the reputation of his friend. His friend has a visitor. He needs to feed his visitor. And therefore he will give him whatever he needs. 
When we pray, we have a choice to focus on one of two things. I suspect it is usually the first one that we focus on, and that is the nature of our request, the way in which we pray. But the second thing that Jesus would have us focus on is the character of the God to whom we are praying. It is God's character rather than our performance that is at Jesus' understanding of prayer. When Jesus wants to teach them how to pray, he wants them to know to whom they are praying. Our assurance that God will answer our prayers does not come from the quality of our request. It does not come from the quality of our presentation or our performance that we've prayed using wonderful words. I want to be very careful here. It is not even because we are obedient sons and daughters. It's like, well, last week I was going to ask God for something, but I had done something wrong, and so I I knew God wouldn't hear me because there was just sin in my life. But now I've, I've got it together, and so, yes, God will hear my prayer. No, God always hears your prayer. What Jesus wants his disciples and us to know is that It isn't our prayer that is important. It is the one to whom we are praying that should be primary. Because God has honor, he will attend to our needs. And this is confirmed by the second parable. If you look at verses 9 through 13. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If then, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So let me ask you, when we pray, should we ask? Should we seek? Should we knock? The answer is clear from verse number 9. Yes. And the reason why, if we ask, we will be given. And if we seek, we will find. And if we knock, the door will be open to us. The reason we know this is because these requests will be met by the God who is good. Again, our focus in praying oftentimes tends to be on ourselves. Am I praying properly, nicely, correctly? Is it organized? Am I saying the right words? Jesus gives us two scenarios. In one, the son comes to a father. He wants a fish. Will the father give him a snake? In the second picture, a son asks for an egg. Will the Father give him a scorpion instead? By the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells this, these parables as well, but there he uses, if a son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? The point is the same. No father who loves his son, who is a man of honor, would give his son a snake and a scorpion or a rock. What is Jesus trying to tell us? If fathers here on earth who are imperfect and sinful 
understand what it means to be attentive to the needs of their sons, responsive to the needs of their children, how much more responsive will God be in all his goodness? What Jesus is trying to tell his disciples in these parables, and because they are theocentric, we should get the point, but I think we miss it oftentimes, it does not matter when we come to God in prayer. The surprise host came at midnight. It doesn't matter. You can come to God at midnight. God hears and will listen, not because we have made ourselves worthy, not because we have used the right words, biblical language, not because we have the right energy. God answers because of who He is. He is good, He is righteous, He is honorable. If we would be honest, there have been many times in our prayers where we have been lethargic, careless, distracted. I'm not suggesting, and I don't think Jesus is suggesting, hey, that's okay, doesn't matter how you pray. But those things are secondary. What is primary is who God is. So when it comes to the matter of prayer, what is your concern? What is your focus? What is primary in your thinking? I think if we'd be honest, at least some of the following come to mind. Am I praying well? Am I asking for the right thing or the right things? Am I asking in the right way? Am I using the right language? Am I putting things well? And will God understand what I'm saying? Do I need to pray more than I am praying? I'm not saying these are bad questions, but I think Jesus would point us in a very different direction. And he would say, you need to ask yourself, who is God? Is he good? Is he righteous? Does he care? Does he listen? Or is he someone who makes excuses and, hey, don't bother me, don't bother me, it's, it's past, you know, come during office hours, during business hours, don't bother me now. Do we imagine that he's someone that you have to nag and nag and nag and nag and then finally he's just, you know, okay, just stop praying, leave me alone, I'll give you what you want. I don't remember the circumstances exactly. But some years ago, I was in the Philippines and I was doing research. And a certain situation, I wish I could remember, came up and Guy and I were keeping in context, uh, in, keeping in contact through texting. And I was texting her. And so I sent her a text and I said something to the effect that I need many prayers for this thing, for this situation to work out. And Gia very wisely wrote back to me, no, not many prayers, but one Father who hears our prayers. Somehow our view of prayer has become all about me. And am I doing a good job? Am I performing correctly? Am I doing things so that God will say, I'll answer your prayer. You've said it nicely. You did. It's well, well constructed, well thought out. Paul tells us in Romans 8, we don't even know how to pray. 
that the Holy Spirit is there with groanings that can't be uttered. We don't even know how, what to pray for, so the Spirit is there helping us. So that's the wrong focus in our prayers. Our focus should be on who are we praying to? And what kind of a God is he? Is he a God of love? Or is he a God of excuses? Is he a God who cares about his children or couldn't be bothered? Is he a God that locks the door and doesn't want to be bothered if it's after a certain time? I'm convinced that if we focus on who God is, it will change the way we pray. So instead of saying, I need to change the way I pray, what, what, Damon, what can I do? What, what are five steps to improving my prayer life? You say, no, no, that's, you've got it exact. It's the reverse. Instead of starting here, you need to start there. Start with who God is. And in recognizing who he is, then I think it begins to shape our prayers. So when Jesus was finished praying and his disciples said, how should we pray? Jesus started out, Father. That's who God is. He's our Father. A Father who loves us. Hallowed be your name. He is a holy God. And so we may be conversational in our prayers, maybe even casual in our prayers, but not disrespectful. Your kingdom come. Well, he's in charge. He is at work in this world. Give us this day our daily bread. Our Father cares that we have enough food to eat every day. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. God forgives our sins. I don't know if that shocks you, but I find myself from time to time shocked by the realization that God forgives sins. Part of me says, well, that's his job. That's what he's supposed to do. But another part of me says, how can God forgive me when I can't forgive myself? But when I go to my father, he is one who forgives. And he is one who has the power not to lead me into temptation. That should shape the way we pray. So when Jesus was asked, Lord, teach us how to pray, he gave them a pattern, but then he gave them two parables to drive home the point. Don't focus on the prayer, if you wish. Focus on the one to whom you are praying. Let's pray together. Our Father, being fallen as we are, Somehow we always manage to make everything about us. And even when it comes to prayer, responding to your work in our lives, our thoughts are about us and our requests and are we doing it right. May each of us today learn from these parables that our focus should be on you, a loving Father, a good Father, a righteous Father, a father of honor who loves his children.
doesn't make excuses, who doesn't mind being bothered. It's not a bother to you. You're there waiting for us to call out to you. As we've seen, the parables were intended to change our behavior to make us disciples. And with this parable, may we begin to change our behavior by your grace and to become more and more like the Lord Jesus and become his disciples. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. Pray for each one in the coming week. We're told that the weather is going to be hot again. It creates difficulties for many people, particularly for health. Watch over each one, those that are here, for those that aren't. And by your grace, bring us back safely next Sunday. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.